Turn to Romans chapter 8, Romans 8. Now, if you're familiar with Texas history, at some point you came across a couple by the name of Ira and Ann Yates. In fact, there's even a little town in West Texas called Ira Ann, and maybe you passed through there. It's not a big place. Um, need to know a little bit about their history. Uh, this couple, they tried to make it as ranchers. They were trying to run a bunch of sheep on the Permian Basin out there. They were, they were living in poverty. They simply couldn't make it work. Uh, there was mortgage uh, money that was needed to be due. They couldn't actually have the finances to make that happen. And Ira kind of had a hunch, you know, like, just maybe, maybe there's oil on our land. And so there was an outfit uh, by the name of Transcontinental Oil Company in 1926. He invited them to come and just check it out, see what maybe you could find, you know. And, I mean, what do I have to lose? Well, they started drilling. They didn't have to go too far, 1,115 feet. They hit pay dirt, and oil starts shooting up. And this first well brought in 80,000 barrels of oil every day. And they started drilling other places on the guy's ranch. And they found oil wells that doubled that more so. And it was just like, it became one of the largest oil fields ever in the United States. In fact, it produced over a billion barrels of oil. And now with fracturing, they are actually expecting that this, even what they're seeing in these last three years, that they'll have another billion barrels of oil coming off Yates' property here. Now, the problem was he, uh, he had immense resources. He just didn't know it. In fact, they didn't even live like they had anything because they, they weren't aware of just all that they had. I bring that to your attention because that's a lot like a lot of Christians. They do not realize the resources that we have in Christ. They live what we could call in spiritual poverty. They don't understand the riches, riches in Christ. They don't understand the gifts of the Holy Spirit. They don't really understand who they are. And hence, they kind of live like they're in poverty spiritually when that couldn't be further from the truth. And you need to know this, that knowing who you are will revolutionize how you live if you are a Christian. And there are two truths that once you really allow this to sink in, is going to actually totally change how you live. And the first one is one that we started looking at last week, and that is that we are alive in Christ. Remember Romans 8, verse 8, he says, those who are in the flesh cannot please God. If you are still in Adam, you have never turned from your sins, you simply follow the impulses of your body. You're all part of the unregenerate humanity. Guess what? You can't please God no matter how religious you are or how much you try to clean up your life. However, look at verse 9. However, you, he's speaking to Christians, are not in the flesh, but in the spirit. If indeed the spirit of God dwells in you. But if anyone does not have the spirit of Christ, he does not belong to him. And he, what he's saying there is that Christ, his spirit, takes up residency where? Where, is, where does the spirit of God dwell? Verse 9 tells us he dwells in you. And you don't follow the impulses of the flesh. In fact, you don't have to anymore because you are a new creature. You have a whole new realm. You now have the ability to pursue righteousness, know the goodness of God, experience grace on an on a overwhelmingly le- overwhelming level. Do you know why? Because you are in Christ. And did you notice in verse 9 how he interchanged spirit of Christ and spirit of God? What that does is it reinforces that Jesus Christ is fully God. He's fully man, 
but he's also fully God. And those ifs that you see there could be translated since, or because we are in Christ, we're no longer in the flesh. And when he says in verse 9 that, uh, that Christ dwells in you, the Spirit of God dwells in you, he goes ahead in verse 10 to reinforce what that means. And if Christ is in you, what makes a person fundamentally a Christian is not that they follow a code of ethics or morals from the Bible, but it's the reality that you've been united with Christ and Christ literally dwells in your hearts by faith, like he talks about in Ephesians chapter 3, verse 17. And that changes everything about us. That means that we've got a new perspective on life, a new power, a new strength. We have peace, we've got joy, we have hope because we literally are made new creatures in Christ. What Christ has done is he has actually taken care of the penalty of sin. When Christ dies on the cross, he pays the penalty for sin. He faces God's just wrath. He takes it in full measure. He also, because he's invested his spirit, means that we no longer are facing the power of sin because we can actually overcome it through the presence of Christ. And one day, and this will be awesome because I cannot wait for this, we will completely be removed from the presence of sin altogether. And so he is saying, look at verse 11, but if the spirit of him who raised Jesus from the dead dwells in you, he who raised Christ Jesus from the dead will also give life to your mortal bodies through the spirit, his spirit, who dwells in you. You might want to put a star or underline verse 11, because this is telling you what it means to be a Christian. The Spirit of God who raised Christ from the dead actually dwells in your hearts and it changes everything about you. You actually have life, even though you're in these mortal bodies and they break down and they fail you and they're prone to sin, God is saying you actually have spiritual life in these bodies and one day God is going to give you a body fit for eternity so that we will be able to experience forever in a body that never breaks down, never wears out, the glories and the riches and the wonders of knowing the one true God. But what you need to understand about spiritual growth is that spiritual growth is never instantaneous. Maturity doesn't just happen overnight. It's kind of like, uh, I heard this uh, Russian comedian, his name is uh, Yakov Smirnov. And he immigrated to the United States and he was talking about, like when he got here, the thing that he loved most about America was our grocery stores. And he says, you know, it's like, I go into the grocery store and I went and on this one aisle, they actually have this powdered milk. And like, you just add water to the powdered milk and you got milk. And then he said, later on, I, I came on to this place where they actually had powdered orange juice. And like, you just have this powder, you pour in water and you've got orange juice. And then he said, and then a few aisles later, I came across baby powder. Whoa! And he said, I thought to myself, what a country! You know what I'm saying? Hey, the Americans, they got baby powder, you know what I'm saying? Now, you're, now if you think like, is that how it works? And you're going to go home and try this, you're going to be disappointed. You're, it's not going to happen for you the way you might think, okay? And I tell you this because some people think that uh, spiritual maturity, depth in Christ, strength in holiness, happens instantaneously. There's just something that just has to happen. What you really need to understand is what does the scripture say about spiritual maturity? What does it look like to be alive in Christ? Look at verse 12. 
He says, so then, brethren, fellow believers, brothers, sisters, we are under obligation not to the flesh to live according to flesh. You see that in verse 12? We're under obligation not to the flesh, but he says, why not in verse 13? For if you are living according to the flesh, you must die. You see, if you were just following and obligated to the impulses of the flesh, that speaks of the unregenerate life, the life that really doesn't know Christ because you can't help yourself. However, he says, but if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the body, you will live. You see, we're under obligation to the Spirit. It's the Spirit of God that actually convicted us of your sin. When I think about how I came to Christ when I was in college, what happened is that God was bringing about conviction that my life was incongruous with a holy God on multiple levels. I don't need to get into all the details. Just look at your life. How did you come convicted? God's Spirit brings that. And not only that, but he, the Spirit of God gives us and imparts a faith, a saving faith where we actually believe in Christ and he implants a new nature within us. And furthermore, he reassures us that we are actually his children. Now, it's, that's why we are obligated to the Spirit. We walk under a whole new empowerment. We're under a new realm. We're in Christ. We follow the Spirit. When you come to verse 13, it actually puts to death some really bad thinking about how a person really develops holiness. For instance, uh, there are some people that believe that what happens is you have to have like a crisis moment in your life. Something like really bad happens, and at that crisis moment, you just like call out to God, and then God literally changes, transforms you, and you never struggle with sin again. Or there's the idea that uh, what you really need to do is just let go, let God, and you become just completely passive, and holiness just overcomes you, okay? And in fact, this is what was called the holiness movement. Or the idea that, uh, no, there was just a turning point decision. At some point, some message, somewhere along the way, you made this decision, and all of a sudden, you never really struggle with sin again. Is that what the Bible presents when it comes to holiness? Actually not. If you want to see holiness, it is verse 13. But if by the Spirit, through the Spirit's work, you're putting to death, you're killing the deeds of the body, you will live. These impulses, all the wrongdoing that your body would like to do because it never wants to submit to the realm and the authority and the lordship of Christ, you fight against it. Now, you know who took sin real seriously? Jesus. You remember the Sermon on the Mount, Matthew 5, 6, 7? Uh, Jesus made these statements like, listen, if your right eye is causing you to sin, what you need to do is you need to tear it out and throw it from you. Because it's better to go into heaven with one eye than hell with both of them. Do you remember that? And I'm looking around. I'm looking at your eyes. There is obviously no one has ever had an issue like that because you all have your eyes in. Or you got your glass eye in or something like that. I don't know, but you're... <laughs> right? How come you're not... Don't tell me you haven't looked... Uh, right? Why do you got both of your eyes in your head? Well, that's because we understand that Jesus is speaking hyperbole to drive home a point. Sin is serious. Remember he said, if your right hand is causing you to sin, whether you're stealing with this or whatever you're doing with that right hand, he said, cut it off and throw it from you. I mean, use the other hand, and I want you to throw it off. All of you got your hands. Why? We understand, well, it's hyperbole, but guess what? 
Jesus takes sin seriously. And he wants your, his people to do the same. And you can. He makes that possible because he actually gives you his spirit so that you can fight these sins versus just like, oh, I just give myself over to him. I can't help myself. Yes, you can. And that's where he's saying, if by the spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. Now, what we do is we have to recognize there is, like Paul says in Romans 7, 21, I find the principle that evil is in me, the very one who wants to do good. Okay? You've got to realize you're in a fight. Your body does not want to submit to God. But you keep coming back to God. You go to his word. You pray, you obey, and you run away from whatever is causing you or calling you into sin. And you've got to take it seriously. If you don't, that ex- probably explains why you might think of yourself as having a prophetic spiritual life. Because you're not taking God at his word. You are not in the battle. Healthy Christianity is fighting. And I'll just say this. Uh, Sin has no more power over your life than what you choose to allow it to have. You make that call. Sin has no more power over your life than what you allow it to have. There's a guy by the name of Larry Christensen. Decades ago, he wrote a book called The Renewed Mind. And in it, he has just an amazing uh, illustration of what it means to be a Christian under new law and under new management. Let me just read you an excerpt. Quite, quote, think of yourself as living in an apartment house and you live there under a landlord who has made your life miserable. He charges you exorbitant rent and when you can't pay, well, he loans you money at a fearful rate of interest to get you even further into his debt. And he barges into your apartment at all hours of the day and night. He wrecks and dirties the place up and then charges you extra for not maintaining the premise. Your life is miserable. Then comes someone who says, guess what? I've taken over this apartment house. I purchased it. You can live here as long as you would like, free. The rent is paid up. And I'm going to live, I'm going to be living here with you in the manager's apartment. And you're thinking, what a joy. You're saved. You're delivered out of the clutches of that old landlord. But what happens? You hardly have time to rejoice in your newfound freedom, when a knock comes at the door, and there he is, the old landlord. Oh, man, he's mean, he's glowering, he's demanding as ever, and he has come for the rent, he says. What do you do? Do you pay him? Of course you don't. Do you go out and pop him in the nose? No, he's bigger than you are. You confidently tell him, you're going to have to take that up with the new landlord. He may bellow and threaten and wheedle and cajole, and you just quietly tell him, Take it up with the new landlord. And if he comes back a dozen times with all sorts of threats and arguments, waving legal-looking documents in your face, you simply tell him once again, why don't you take that up with the new landlord? In the end, he knows he has to. He knows it, too. He, he just hopes that he can bluff and threaten and deceive you into doubting that the new landlord will really take care of things. And friends, that's a lot like the Christian life. You see, Christ is literally dwelling in your life. He's like the new landlord. You got a new Lord of your life. And you are of a freedom that comes in Christ. You are experiencing grace. And yet, what happens is Satan, the old landlord, he keeps knocking, he keeps wanting in. He wants to turn your mind into a playground for his activities. And frankly, he's pretty successful at doing it. I mean, just think of it. Like he comes knocking in and he brings back worry. 
Now, before you were a Christian, you might have been a masterful warrior. You may have perfected the art. It's written all over your face. It was define your life, right? Well, guess what? You don't have to live like that anymore. You have the presence of Christ. When that comes back, like, think that up with the new landlord. I'm trusting in him who's in control of all things. Or self-pity or fear. Fear is a huge one, right? Fear can paralyze your life. But now that you have Christ, guess what? You don't live in fear anymore. Or pride or lust. And these things, they just kind of come up. You know, there's truly help when we will turn to Christ. And what you need to understand is your feelings will fool you. And Satan is masterful at using your feelings to get you going to places where he, God never wants his children to be going. Now, you got feelings. They're legitimate, except you don't put your faith in your feelings. You put them in Christ and who he is. And so when you face issues like fear and doubt and anxiety and lust and despair, those feelings may come. What you do is you like, oh, let's focus on Christ. I have found this real simple practice to be very helpful. What you do is you flee from the problem, whether it be something physical, but I find that most of them are up here in your head, right? Mental. This is the battleground. You flee from the problem and you focus on Christ. You focus on him. You turn to him. Whatever that situation is, you run from it. You turn from it. You've got God you're on the throne, and I worship Christ. I am a new creature. I have been brought into your family. So worry, hate, lust, laziness, pride, whenever these things hit you, what you need to do is focus on him. And do not get discouraged if it's repetitive or the frequency on which some of these same temptations keep coming back at you. It'd be sure great if you had, wow, great, man, I handled that one well. Never face that again. Doesn't work that way. It is what Romans 8, verse 13 if by the Spirit you are putting to death the deeds of the flesh. And if you think, you know what? I've got the willpower to make this happen. I'm not going to sin anymore because I am strong enough to make it happen. i got news for you. You will fail and of yourself. It can't be done. What you need to do is focus on the strength that comes in Christ. And friends, you can because you've got a whole new reality, a revolutionary reality. You are alive in Christ. And so when you face your hundreds of temptations, just like we all do, whether it be gluttony or unbridled anger, lying, pride, stealing, cheating, immorality, vulgarity, swearing, whatever it is, what you need to do is say, Lord, I love you more than this, whatever it might be or whoever it might be. And these are very real temptations. Lord, I love you more than this. And it'll seem alluring to do what is wrong, but you keep coming back to him because you're alive in Christ and there is truly help in him. You want your life revolutionized? Let me just tell you, you need to realize you have been made alive in Christ and there is something else you need to come to terms with. Let this sink in deeply. You also have been adopted as his children. Turn the page, you look at verse 14. He says, for all who are being led by the spirit of God, these are sons of God. When it talks about being led, very similar to like being like walking in the Spirit. And that is the idea that God's Spirit now is bringing about illumination, helping you to understand the truths of Scripture, but he is also bringing about sanctification. He actually gives you the power to obey. 
You have a strength because you're now united with Christ. You've been adopted as his children. In fact, he says, these are the sons of God. And look what he says in verse 15. For you've not received a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God hasn't like turned you into a slave where you just you run your life by fear. And some people, like, they, they just are fearing God, not in a, in a reverential way, and that fearing God is the beginning of wisdom, but a fear like, man, he hates me, and I'm just like about 20 seconds away from being annihilated. And you live your life in complete fear. God wants his children to grow, flourish, and thrive in the context of unconditional love. You don't have a spirit of slavery leading to fear again, but you've received a spirit of adoption, a spirit of adoption as sons by which we cry out, Abba, Father. God has produced in our lives the ability for us to experience the riches of the reality of being really in Christ. When you see that word adoption, it's actually a legal term. And it has, it's made up of two Greek words, and it, it's uios, son, thesis, placement. Son, placement. Legally, a son, placement. That's what this word adoption means. And what it refers to is the fact that God has taken those who have believed in Christ, and he has put them in a position, legally, forensically, where they are seen as his sons. And it's, it's, it's actually even more greater than, than we could imagine. When we think of adoption, like, wow, you're brought into a family. When God brings us into his family, he literally actually infuses us with his spirit. It's like his spirit actually becomes part of who we are. It's like a, our, we actually receive even the DNA of God. That's what makes us fundamentally new. And we call out to him, Abba, Father. That's an Aramaic term for, of intimacy. And for the Jewish people, they, only the kids would call their dad, their, like, daddy, Abba. On my mirror at my house, on my dresser, I got this, like, picture of my kid, one of my kids made me. And it says, I love you, daddy, with an exclamation mark. And I, I look at that. Now, you know who calls me daddy, don't you? Folks at church? No. People in the neighborhood? No, at the school, at the seminary, no. You know who calls me daddy? My kids do. We got a deep, intimate, loving, ultra-committed relationship. My kids call me daddy. And God wants us to understand we have a father that we can call daddy. He loves us intimately. And he wants you to know what it means to really be adopted into his family. Now, you... See uh, verse 14, and you go, huh, wait a second, I'm a female, and now these are all sons of God. Hmm, I don't like that. How come I didn't say sons and daughters? Boy, this isn't politically correct. It should have said sons and daughters, right? You might be thinking that, but actually, let me help you understand what is taking place here. Paul is writing in the context of the traditional culture in which he lives, and daughters in that culture were treated as second-class citizens. It's great to be a guy, be a son, daughters. I mean, it just, that's how it was. Paul is writing in that culture. And when he says that you are sons of God, 
He is speaking into the fact that in this traditional culture, you need to understand there are no second-class citizens, males, females. We are all one in Christ, and he literally puts us in that position as sons of God. We're in an esteemed, privileged position, and that's what he is referencing right there. And now, we actually can call God Abba. And there's an intimacy that God wants in our relationship. If you want to grow deep in your relationship with Christ, learn to know the intimacy of the Father. Now, calling God Abba would be extremely uncommon for the Jewish people. The religious leaders in, in Jesus' day were known as the people that seemed to know God best. They were the ones closest to God, but they never referred to God the Father as Abba, okay? That was just too intimate. They, we couldn't do that. In fact, they looked down upon Jesus because Jesus actually did. In fact, he actually prayed that way. So much so in John 5, 18, they want to pick up stones and kill him. Uh Uh-uh, you do not do that. You can't be that intimate with the Father. But the whole idea of Gentiles, non-Jewish people, calling the Father Abba, that is scandalous. And even the whole process of adoption was actually not widely practiced among the Jewish people. They just didn't really adopt people. You know who adopted kids, don't you? It was the Greeks and the Romans. They adopted children. They brought them in, and, and it's, it was kind of fascinating. When the, when the Roman Christians, when they read this letter, when they saw adoption, do you know who they thought of? First, immediately. It would be this major adoption that happened by the kind of the, uh, really the guy who was preeminent founding father of the Roman Empire, Julius Caesar. Because Julius Caesar adopted Octavian. You familiar with Octavian? No. Who would name their kid Octavian? And he, So what? You know who Octavian became, don't you? Octavian became Emperor Augustus. He was the Roman emperor in the time of Christ. He had been adopted. All that Julius Caesar had, he became bestowed upon. He became an heir to receive all of these things, goodness, greatness, glory, riches, power, all of it. Octavian, Emperor Augustus. In fact, Octavian actually adopted four children of his own. And so the Romans were very familiar with this, and it changed everything for them. And when you have been adopted into a family, it changes how you live, especially in God's family. There's a guy by the name of Craig Barnes, and he relays the time that his dad shows up at home with a 12-year-old boy. Apparently this 12-year-old boy, his parents had died from a drug overdose. There was no one to care for him. And so Craig's dad brings home Roger and, and just makes him a part of the family. Now, if you, if you have come from a family where it's, it's like drugs and that is a major theme, you need to know there's a lot of difficulties and hardships that come with that. If you want to understand a lot of what's going on in America, you need to even kind of look at what's going on in some of these homes. And for Roger, man, he, he didn't know how to live. No one had ever trained him, made those investments. He had been tolerated. But he was generally in the way. Now that he brought in, there was just one common phrase that he would hear in sentence. When Roger would act out like he thought would be acceptable, he'd fight and punch and scream and beller, throw tantrums to get what he wanted because that's how he survived in his old family. They would say, no, no, Roger. That's not how we live in this family. In fact, they would get, Roger heard that over and over. Oh, no, 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 no. Hey, I know you're going to hit this guy. We, we, don't, we don't do that. Not, not in this family. And it was a long process for Roger to learn what it meant to be in the family. But he had been brought in, and then he learned what it looked like. That's what God has done. He has brought us 
into his family. And we came from some pretty horrendous conditions, right? You don't need to stand up and tell me. I, I know some of the backgrounds. You don't have to go public on it. But that had an effect on you. And what God is doing is in, he is teaching you, hey, let me show you how to live in my family. First of all, you call me father. You can call me daddy. I love you. You call me Abba. And I want to have you grow and develop. And any time that you're doing things that are not in my family, this is not keeping of my family, I'm going to bring that to your attention. And I will use the Holy Spirit to do so. I'll be gentle with you. Please respond. But if you won't, I will bring whatever circumstances needed to bear because I am committed to you and to your development. I love you. And you don't do these things to get into the family. God, once he brings you into the family, you know what? That's where he starts bringing these changes about. I don't know if you ever read anything about orphanages around the world, but uh, some of these places are horrendous. Especially, uh, I remember reading about the Russian orphanages. I t- talk about I, how do these kids even make it? How poorly they are treated and abused. I mean, it just breaks my heart that the Russians said, guess what? You're not adopting any more kids anymore, all right? These kids that are already in terrible situations, now they're pawns in a particular Russian leader's hands. I want you to think about the orphanage in the world that you came from. Probably pretty tough. A lot of sin. God's brought you into his family, and you need to know something. He never gives up on his children. If you need a text on that, you just look at Luke 15 and the prodigal son. He loves you, and he wants you to experience the depth of this relationship because he's adopted you and brought you into his family. And if you want to be blown away Look at verse 16. And the Spirit himself testifies with our spirit that we are children of God. God's Spirit testifies with our spirit. Maybe even bring the idea that you have to have two witnesses to bring testimony to bear the, the reality of truth. We are his children. And God's Spirit reinforces this in our life. Even when we totally mess up and we really make a mess of things, God reinforces, you're my child and I love you. I'm your father. And look at this, verse 17. And if children, heirs also, wait a second here. You're heirs of God. What? And fellow heirs with Christ? You mean all that Christ is inheriting? What? We, we're going to receive this? I mean, that's hard to imagine. What we're going to inherit Eternal salvation. We barely even know what that means. Uh, God himself, his glory is his splendor. We will inherit being in his presence forever. Glory, to experience the glory and the grandeur of God. We're going to, and, and everything in the universe, we inherit. Why? Because we're united in Christ. Everything but worship, because worship belongs to God alone. But friends, our future is absolutely glorious. And we inherit it all. As hard as it is for us to fathom it, man, life here on earth is tough, but guess what? It doesn't compare to what we're going to receive. And look at verse 17. If indeed we suffer with him so that we also may be glorified with him. Just one other indicator that you're in God's family, you will always find this in his children. They are willing to suffer for the glory of God. They'll make sacrifices. They'll take heat. They, They will, if called upon, take a stand for Christ and his honor. It may cost them something, even in their own sufferings, physical sufferings, difficulties, they do so for the honor of God because there's just something about being in his family that changes everything for us. 
So friends, if you're going to see your life revolutionized, you need to know this. You need to know these truths. That you are really alive in Christ and you've been adopted into his family. There was a moving story that comes from this woman by the name of Marianne Bird. She wrote her memoirs uh, in a book called The Whisper Test. And, you know, I'm sure that none of you have this book. She's not well known. But Marianne Bird, man, she had it. Talk about a tough life. She was born with multiple birth defects. She was deaf in one ear. She had a cleft palate. She had a disfigured face, crooked nose, lopsided feet. So what do you think school is like for her? As a child, she dreaded encountering other children. You know how gracious and nice kids can be encouraging, right? Ripped her to shreds. Some of you experienced that. They'd go, what's wrong with your face? What's wrong with you? What happened? And she'd, she'd say, you know, I, I, I was in an accident or I fell, cut my lip on a piece of glass, laugh at her, mock her. Every year at the school, they'd have this hearing test. Maybe you remember how this would work where the teacher sat at the desk and then you would put your hands over your ears and, they'd, and then the teacher would say something and, and they would find out if you could hear or not. And we've gotten a little more sophisticated since then, but the teacher would say something like, the sky is blue or you have new shoes. If you could hear, you pass the test, you're good, let's keep moving. Well, one year, Marianne had the most beloved teacher in the school, Miss Leonard. This woman, and this, this is how, it always works this way. You know why she was the most loved teacher, don't you? Because she loved the kids. This wasn't a job for her, this was a calling. She loved these children, she was compassionate on them, she was gracious, and Marianne, she had Miss Leonard. So at the beginning of the year, they're doing the hearing test. Um, Mary Ann would always cheat. Obviously, she couldn't hear in one ear. She would just kind of like subtly cup her hands so she could always hear the teacher. And so she's standing in front of Miss Leonard, and she writes of this experience. She's waiting. She's doing the hearing test, and she goes, quote, I waited for those words that God must have put into her mouth, those seven words that changed my life. Miss Leonard did not say... The sky is blue, or you have new shoes. But she said, she said these seven words that literally transformed me. And this is what Miss Leonard said. I wish you were my child. She says, it was a watershed moment. It changed everything for me. Now, in terms of her physical condition, nothing changed. She still had all those major issues, but she said, everything changed. No longer was she defined by the judgments or the harsh words of her classmates. Now she found out that she was loved and could be lovable. She could actually start envisioning a future not constrained by her circumstances, but rather she could transcend them simply because the love of one teacher. And what do you think, uh, Mary Ann Bird, what do you think she became in life? She became a teacher of excellence. You know what she was known for, don't you? She was known for her compassion and her kindness. And friends, this is what you need to know. God wants you to know that he loves you. Like he's saying, I am glad that you're my child. You read this passage and he's saying, I love you deeply. Please come to terms with this because this will change everything for you. I've given you a new name. You got a new legal standing. I've brought you into my family. You got a brand new future and I'm going to change your present. In fact, I've given you my spirit and he is at work in your life where you're starting to look a lot like me. 
So friends, what we find is this. Knowing who you are revolutionizes how we live. All to the glory of God. You think about these truths and you thank God for them. And when you do, you find your life will be changed as well. Let's pray. Lord, what an amazing passage of scripture. God, you are so gracious to us. And if there is someone who has come here today who has never put their trust in Christ, they're still in the flesh, in Adam, and they are out there. And yet you've brought conviction and you're calling their hearts right now to receive the love that is found in Christ. Would they pray with me and say, God, I turn from myself and my sin and I believe and I trust in Jesus. I give you my life and would you change me from the inside out? I need your peace and I want to know what it means to really be in your family, to call you Father, Abba. And Father, for the rest of us, would you have our souls at rest when we experience the love and the depth that is found in Christ? May the reality that we are alive in Christ and adopted in your family, may that be the hallmarks of our life that we think deeply of, regularly of, for your glory. As we pray and tell you we love you in Jesus' name, amen.